We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, January 24th, 2022, as we bring you a new episode. There's not a whole lot going on in baseball, but later today... The Major League Baseball Players Association and league owners will be meeting in person. Whatever the outcome is from that meeting, we'll be covering it on SoxMachine.com and perhaps during our midweek podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about Baseball's Hall of Fame as the voting will be finalized on Tuesday, January 25th, and we'll discuss who we think will make the call, if anyone, And can Mark Burley survive on the ballot? Plus, we'll talk about the park factors at Guarantee Ray Field and the sense of urgency that the Chicago Sun-Times had on their back cover page of the newspaper over the weekend. Uh, So we'll talk about those items as well. But first, what everyone is talking about in the sports world is what occurred this past weekend during the NFL Divisional Playoffs. Yes, we're going to talk some football Stick with me here, because it will be tied to the White Sox. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I have to ask, as someone who now resides in Nashville, how is the city mood after the weekend? I don't know, because I've been tied up in my my own house projects this weekend, so I haven't uh, been out and about, but I did see... A lot of watch parties uh, coming to and from, and I did see yeah, I managed to avoid the game day traffic uh, running some errands, but uh, have not heard anything since. So I don't know if it's just a matter of, you know, maybe a lack of belief in Ryan Tannehill to where maybe just they, uh, you know, maybe felt it was coming, but I haven't felt the, you know, like the, the, the air come out of the city or else, you know, it could be that there are just so many tourists here that, you know, with the amount of Bengals fans uh, sprinkled in and other NFL fans. Otherwise, that just 
no one loss can hit the city that hard. But I think you really just want to talk football because of your 49ers uh, winning. And just you want you want to uh, revel in it a little bit and uh, trying to think of a way to do so. Yeah, let's talk about Chicago White Sox fan Jimmy Garoppolo and him, <laughs> him going to the NFC Championship game. Yeah, uh, my voice is still recovering from that amazing victory and if you're a green bay packers fan listening to this i i apologize that is a that is a brutal brutal loss i'm trying to think of what would be the baseball equivalent it has to be i I was thinking like the texas rangers in the 2011 world series gym where they had game six and then david freeze happened Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you go from you have this you have a world championship locked up. You got this playoff game one, and then in a heartbeat, things radically changed. It's tied, and then all of a sudden, you have this sense of dread, and eventually the St. Louis Cardinals win that game, and we all know what happened in game seven of that World Series. Uh, and Texas still hasn't won a World Series. And that's kind of... I find that to be a similar feeling, especially as far as for Packer fans are listening to this, like should have had that game, Mm -hmm. but a weird thing happened with the block punt. And then Robbie gold of all people makes that field goal. Now this is where I'm going to tie into the white Sox because this is what surprised me was the amount of Chicago bears fans that quickly hopped on the 49ers bandwagon for this game, which is totally cool. Uh, Mm -hmm. As a Niners fan, welcome to the bandwagon. There's some things going to have to prepare you for, like Jimmy Garoppolo is not that good of a quarterback. Uh, Bless his heart. Um, And the fourth quarter is going to be a very trying experience. But when Robbie Gold made that game-winning field goal, it's like if the Chicago Bears had just beat the Green Bay Packers in that (laughs) playoff game. And, you know, the the German phrase, schadenfreude, was at an all-time high for Bears fans watching the Packers lose that playoff game. So this is my question to you, Jim. Do White Sox fans, because of the Venn diagram when it comes to Bears fans, many Mm -hmm. White Sox fans are Bears fans. Do we have that same type of loathe for other teams that if the White Sox are in the, if they're not in the playoffs, that when we see one of these teams get knocked out, it feels like that the White Sox knocked them out. Uh, I think, you know, maybe the Bartman game. I think that was probably a moment where White Sox fans celebrated the Cubs just falling apart in spectacular fashion. So I think that's one instance where it was similar. And I think there is some, you know, rubbernecking. I would call it more than like Schaden or different from Schadenfreude. I'd call it rubbernecking, kind of gawking at the Twins postseason losing streak and just marveling at the fact that they cannot win a game in October. And there's a little bit of the similar, I guess, uh, dynamic to where the you know Bears theoretically are in the worst position because they didn't actually make the postseason begin with. They make the playoffs begin with, but they can still manage to laugh at the misfortune that the, the Packers uh, had. But I think... What made this one unique was the whole Aaron Rodgers thing. I've never seen sports Twitter come together just to 
it, it reminded me of like the airplane scene where the just the, the, everybody's lining up in the aisle to to shake the the woman. Just so you have the uh, you know just the uh, even the nuns are in line ready to uh, you know, get their uh, slaps in. And I think that's what it reminded me of, just how much everybody was happy to see Aaron Rodgers fail. And that's I think something that made this. I think unique because it wasn't just Bears fans. I think Bears fans had, you know, partially Packers hates, partially Rodgers hate, partially Robbie Gold pleasure. I think people, you know, Bears fans still like seeing Robbie Gold do well. You know, maybe that's their own shot in Freud against the Bears front office giving up on him uh, so many years ago and that he's still in the league delivering, you know, huge kicks. But uh, just seeing the rest of sports fandom, like not even, yeah, I don't think it was even NFL fans. Or, you know, maybe casual NFL watchers were getting in on it. I think that's what made it so remarkable to me. So I think that that kind of transcended any kind of White Sox thing or even any kind of, you know, Bears thing. It was just remarkable. And, you know, maybe the Astros could inspire that kind of sports-wide loathing that Rodgers had in that very moment. But even then, I think it was just, you know, the fact that Rodgers roped in the pandemic and touched a nerve for so many people who maybe don't even watch sports. Whereas even the Astros were like a sports specific, uh, scandal. Like you had to explain to non-sports fans what exactly happened and what exactly is allowed and what isn't allowed. I think just the fact that it, uh, Rogers extended beyond just sports interest into general interest, general public everyday life, I think is what made it so just explosive. (laughs) Just as John Freud, uh, like a volcano. Yeah, the Houston Astros is a good example because this past World Series, I felt everyone outside of Houston was rooting for the Atlanta Braves. Mm -hmm. But that also wasn't like 100% behind Atlanta because Atlanta has their issues as well, especially with the chop and the team name. uh, Yeah, so the Atlanta Braves are not perfect. If, If it was another team, let's say like, the San Francisco Giants that had faced the Houston Astros or even Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, I, I feel like more baseball fans and maybe even non-baseball fans would have enjoyed the Houston Astros not winning the World Series. Yeah, the Milwaukee um, Brewers would have been a yeah, good one. Yeah, that that's also a, a good example. But boy, also I... Also Grayson Allen, that whole... <laughs> that, yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to bring that up. Uh, so yeah, that's another time-specific, uh, very time-specific, like the day before. So yeah, that's just uh, so many things just kind of uh, coalesced into this explosion of glee and uh, almost sadistic glee would be basically impossible to replicate, I think, with any other individual sports game, I think, on a given day. Uh, that I can think of. It would just take a a tremendous set of circumstances to duplicate it. Yeah, for the White Sox, they're not going to face the Brewers for a a couple of years now after facing the Brewers this past season in interleague play. I do wonder, you mentioned Grayson Allen, and everyone's got March 4th circled on the calendar because that's when the Milwaukee Bucks are coming back to the United Center to face the Chicago Bulls. That game will sell out, (laughs) and when Grayson Allen is announced and he is on the floor, he is (laughs) constantly going to get booed, and people are going to be hoping that someone takes a sucker punch at Grayson Allen for what he did uh, to Alex Caruso, and Allen has been suspended for a game, but many feel like that's not enough for what he did, hurting Caruso. And then Milwaukee Bucks Twitter earlier on Saturday 
tweeting things out with about Grayson Allen and then having to delete those tweets because it was in it was in bad taste. And then the Packers losing. And I, I feel like I wonder if this is going to carry on whenever the season starts between Cubs and Brewers fans, because that's already a pretty heated rivalry. One that the the temperature continues to rise mm-hmm. with each passing year. And now I'm just wondering if it is a Chicago versus Wisconsin thing now uh, when it comes to rivalries and what is uh, what has happened. Not necessarily Illinois and Wisconsin, because I'm sure Southern Illinois, mm-hmm. you know, more have stronger ties to St. Louis than Chicago. Uh, that's where you have a lot of Cardinals fans in Illinois come from. But now I wonder if there's this Chicago Wisconsin sports rivalry. Yeah, because I think it's softened with the Bucks. I think a lot of Bulls fans or Chicago fans were. Uh, you know, indifferent towards the Bucks or kind of happy to see him or like Giannis or, you know, just have a general and, you know, appreciation for his skills to where like they were, it was neat that they won it. I didn't, te- you know, they're, the Bucks and Bulls have, you know, been on and off in terms of the intensity of the rivalry, but I think the way they're, you know, the Bulls kind of being a non-factor during the season and, uh, you know, until late, I suppose, with the way they transform the front office. But just, you know, them being largely irrelevant in the larger NBA and the Bucks, you know, having uh, one of the most enjoyable players to watch. I think there is kind of a general soft appreciation for what the Bucks accomplished. And I think that's all at the window now. Yeah, most definitely. But I do, I do think that, for the Twins and Cubs, that if the White Sox are not in the postseason, and if these two teams are, that White Sox fans do take enjoyment when they get knocked out. I I can't say the same for Cleveland, because I felt indifferent for Cleveland. Kansas City rarely lost in the postseason when they made it. So even if you were rooting against them, you didn't get many opportunities to be happy. And then Detroit, I always felt like Detroit was going to blow it in some way shape or form but those would be my two picks that were White Sox fans would get the enjoyment of seeing these teams lose in the postseason would be the Minnesota Twins and of course the inner city rivalry with the Chicago Cubs yeah because I think with the Twins like just the entire pretty much the entire decade of the aughts when, uh, aside from 2005 and 2008 barely you know the Twins had the upper hand and through many frustrating ways in the, you know, the Metrodome, which uh, White Sox fans just thought was incredibly unfair place to play. Uh, And all the anonymous random twins and and that just showed up and played well. And then he had the, uh, you know, Justin Morneau trash talk and whatnot. So I think there's been a history of going six months at a time with the twins. Whereas with the, with Cleveland, you just haven't seen, that six month battle where they both been good in the same season and slugging it out, except for maybe in, in 2006, but that was basically it. It was very brief overlap of windows. And yeah, that's, I think one of the, I suppose missed opportunities of the way the 2021 season unfolded is that the white Sox, you know, they, it was great that they won the central It's great that they coasted to the title, very enjoyable, but you didn't have that kind of metal testing case where just like the twins were relevant by the time the White Sox played them basically. Yep. And they just had to keep them down And the, in Cleveland was just under man. They got hurt and just never really mounted a threat. So the White Sox, you know, it was basically a, a, a coasting that hurt no feelings. Cause even like the, the twins were too, 
uh, involved with their own issues. I think their, their issues transcended everything. You know, they, they had no real uh, specificity to the White Sox and same thing with Cleveland. So they didn't feel like the White Sox had their number. They just felt uh, the world had their number. <laughs> I think uh, it'll take you know, maybe this is, uh, coming year, whenever it happens, uh, we'll see that kind of head-to-head matchup where it does feel like series have a whole lot riding on them. Well, maybe, and hopefully next week uh, when we talk on the podcast, we're talking about White Sox fan Jimmy Garoppolo playing in the Super Bowl again. Because, uh, yeah, we need more White Sox fans in the spotlight, Jim. Well, apparently, like, uh, fourth quarter is going to be a mess either way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's their thing. It's definitely their thing. Oh, man. All right, let's talk about the Hall of Fame voting, which is going to be a blast on on Tuesday, especially on social media when the votes are finally all tallied up with the non-public ballots counted and we get the final vote tally. And right now, thanks to the excellent work from Ryan Thibodeau and his crew, uh, that have been keeping tabs on the on the public ballots, and they've also received ten anonymous ballots as well uh, to add into their mix. So they, as we are recording this, have forty five percent of the known ballots counted vote counted for. So almost halfway there, and I'm sure they'll get past that fifty percent mark uh, later on this day, January twenty fourth. But right now, Jim, with 45% of the ballots known, David Ortiz is at 83.7%. Barry Bonds is at 77.5%. Roger Clemens is at 76.4%. All three of them are currently above the 75% threshold. And then you got Scott Rowland, who's at 70.2%. And Kurt Schilling is at 60.7%. So I ask you... Trying to make a prediction, how many players do you think get elected on Tuesday into baseball's Hall of Fame? I think only Ortiz. Uh, it's hard to say um, just because of the DH and because of the very scant performance-enhancing drug case against him. There was that alleged failed test, a reported failed test, New York Times reported uh, you know, years and years ago. But Sammy Sosa had a similar... He, he, that was the only documented ties that Sosa had, and that seemed to hurt him a lot more. So you know, given that he's a DH, given that he has that connected to him, like I could see him faring poorly in the private ballots to where he drops below 75%, but he doesn't have the kind of baggage that Bonds and Clemens have. He doesn't have the, you know, or even A-Rod for that matter, um, Kurt Schilling for that matter. If Ortiz didn't ever had that, you know, report, um, there would be nothing to really hang it on except for just general suspicion, maybe anti-Boston hate that would really, you know, make it, you know, I, I guess a thing. So I can see him sneaking by like maybe not 83%, like maybe 76%. I could see him taking a hit, but I think as long as he stays like closer to 85 than 80 in the private ballots, I think he'll have enough of a cushion to get in. Yeah. So then it, it raises the question because bonds and Clemens are the last time that they're on this ballot before they have to go into the committees. If they fail to make it, mm-hmm. do you think that their peers on future Hall of Fame committees will eventually vote them in. It's possible. I know Frank Thomas, he's on record 
as saying that he would never vote for a a known user or you know maybe in the case of Bonds and Clemens you know Clemens has you know one um a court case at least defending his own honor that you know maybe you still have to say suspected but he's on record as saying he wouldn't vote but some you know players like I know Mike Schmidt he's somebody who's been you know having uh having had a f- forgiving public attitude saying that you know we you know everybody's cut corners in their own era and I can't say for certain you know whether I would have uh you know been able to resist using what they had available to them just because, you know, whether it's, you know, greenies or, uh, you know, other forms of illegal pick-me-ups or boosts, you know, know, people have taken them. So I guess it depends on the players who are involved. Like it could come down to like individuals and then just a matter of, you know, just as we've seen with like Harold Baines, uh, just the private connections and who might, uh, yeah, that's a case where, you know, Baines being a, a solid citizen publicly and having a lot of people like him, whereas uh, Bonds wasn't really in the business of making friends. And that's a case where, you know, maybe uh, it's going to be harder for him to pull a favorable draw of people who have a, uh, even if they didn't think anything of his usage, they just might not like the person and might not, you know, uh, want to uh, give him the honor there. So I think it's going to be tough for him to get there just because of you know the combination of usage and just being the prickly persona he was and you know I'm kind of at peace with thinking that you know the hall is an honor you know it's not something that's you know owed so you know if you don't do the bare minimum of you know just I guess in the case of you know I'm sympathetic to the you know usage argument just because you know we have no idea who used, who didn't. There are, you know, PED users in the hall. People connected to the game have said that much. Uh, so, you just, you know, I, I'm not so much bothered by that. And also my favorite player growing up used it. And I would have been probably might not have been a, uh, a fan of the game to the extent that I am if Jose Canseco wasn't Jose Canseco for all his uh, assets and, and, and drastic <laughs> flaws. So I, I'm sympathetic to it. But just, you know, there is a case where, you know, if you you know, some things do come around to where just like you could have done a little bit more to uh, just have more people rooting for you. <laughs> I think so. That's kind of where I'm at uh, when it comes to, you know, making peace with him, not, not getting in and Clemens not getting in. But uh, yeah, it, it's, I, I think he stands a better chance than with the writers, at least, you know, I think it's going to take another maybe 10 years for the writers to have 75%. I think A-Rod is going to be the next case. Although even then A-Rod, failed or at least he failed test or got punished after testing and after the the punishment system was in place where I think you know Manny Ramirez faces the same thing just it's different when you actually had a crackdown and they still failed it whereas when it was the wild west uh earlier in the century then I think there's you know it's a different conversation but yeah I think Ortiz gets in and everybody else is everybody else is happy I guess that this won't be an argument for the public and now it'll be taken up in private. So a David Ortiz only Hall of Fame class, would that be weird? Uh, not this year, just because uh, with Minnie Minoso and Buck O'Neill, there will be, uh, and then you have, um, you know, Tony Oliva, you have, you know, Jim Cott, uh, you have Gil Hodges, you know, Gil Hodges, another case who has just been uh, on the fringe forever and so many people rooting for him 
that uh, there are a lot of feel-good stories here. Uh, and uh, I think that's going to be, it's going to be about David Ortiz, but it's also going to be about Buck O'Neill. I think he's going to have a big contingent to where a lot of people who have said this is long overdue, same thing with Minnie Minoso, same thing with Hodges. So yeah, you're going to have a case where it's it's going to, you know, there, there are some like veterans committees or or some, you know, golden era early baseball where it's just like an umpire and a guy who played in the 1900s and great, 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 great grandnephew is going to be accepting the award for him. And there's no tangible connection. Nobody's that jazzed up about it. And it doesn't feel like a reason to go to Cooperstown, but Ortiz will have a draw. And then even if, you know, uh, Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minosa aren't with us anymore, they're going to have fans there. Uh, they're going to be wanting to see it, you know, the plaque. They're going to be wanting to see the exhibits for them. Uh, they're going to get huge ovations. So it's going to be, it's going to be a party, I think, uh, more so than if it was Ortiz and say like Bud Fowler, who, you know, is a worthy induction from the early baseball era, but would not be a draw in and of himself. All right. So from a White Sox perspective, Mark Burley is currently at 5.1% of the known ballots. 5% is the cutoff to remain on the ballot. So, Jim, will Mark Burley survive the 5% cut? I think he will. I think he's somebody, at least based on his first year, he gained a couple percentage points going uh, uh, going from public to private. So I think when you look at that and you look at his very unique career, I compare him to Tim Hudson, and Hudson's only a 2.8%. And when it comes to like the general shape of their career and innings thrown and quality and, and peak, you know, Hudson had fewer individual highlights, but he had better peak seasons, better Cy Young finishes. So I consider them roughly individual cases. And Hudson's running at 2.8% just because I don't think he has those individual highlights, those individual hooks, you know, whether it's the perfect game, the no-hitter, the uh, gold gloves, the World Series ring, the just fast pace everybody appreciated that, you know, Burley maintained even as, you know, he, in his final years with, uh, you know, the Blue Jays, you know, he's still a, a well above average pitcher who delivered quick games. Everybody enjoyed watching. So I think he has a little bit more of an emotional pull on the voters who aren't public, who don't have Twitter accounts, who aren't making theirs known. At least that, that's what I'm hoping. But based on the first year's results where he gained a bit from the, uh, the voters who aren't as wired in, that I think um, I'm hoping that's that case. And, you know, maybe he's only at 8% versus 11, but I think he'll be on the ballot. I hope so. I hope so. The, there needs to be a continuation of the conversation about Mark Burley, especially if we go through 2022 season again. And if you have another huge argument about who wins the Cy Young, and if it's a, if it's a close Cy Young race, either in the American and or the National League, and one guy wins it, even though the other guy that many believe should have earned it pitched more innings, that I, I'm hoping that draws more attention to what Mark Burley did because we're not going to see 14 consecutive 200 innings thrown uh, in a in a while. In a while. Mini Margulis is going to be able to drive uh, next time <laughs> uh, we, we see that feat be accomplished. Uh yeah, so I, I do yeah, hope Mark think, Burley survives. Yeah, I think that's how I look at Burley's career and some other ones. Like, you know, Jim Cott was somebody who uh, the serious Hall of Fame scholars didn't see him as all that special, saw him as a compiler who just fell short of offering peak. But when you look at his career and he threw like 40, you know, won 283 games through 4,500 innings, like nobody's going to do that. So, you know, even if you feel like he came up short of the peak, like he doesn't, 
cause a whole lot of guys to come in. Maybe Tommy John is one who gets in, but otherwise, not a whole lot of cases who look like his. And I think the further you get away from Burley's career, and the more you get into five, six inning starters, and the more you get into bullpens taking over, that you're not going to see careers like him versus like Billy Wagner, who's running at about 49%. You're going to see a lot more Billy Wagner's, going to see a lot more Joe Nathan's, and, and he's been somebody compared to Wagner. You're going to see more like him. So I think that's going to make Burley more special. It just might be till he gets to a committee to where like people say like, wow, he did that. He, you know, there's not going to be another pitcher like him. Uh, Everybody remembers him even 20 years later. Hopefully it's not 20 years, but even like 15 years later, everybody remembers what he looked like. Remember what he threw like, remembers what games he was involved in. And I think that'll have some pull. Do you think voting changes after this year or there's just not enough push right now for a difference in, in how the Hall of Fame is voting for these players? I don't think so. I think if there was going to be a change, it was going to be during the year where there were severe backlogs and Jim Edmonds was one and done and Kenny Lofton was one and done just because there was no room for them on the ballot. Alan Trammell took a big hit in his final year of eligibility because they ran out of room. Um, Mike Mussina took a while to get headway, even though like he looks like a no-doubter now. And he's somebody I think I would point to for... Burley, you know, Messina was better than Burley, but just when it comes to just how standards shift, you know, Messina was uh, compared to, you know, Greg Maddox and Randy Johnson and Tom Glavin and guys he wasn't quite as good as, but, you know, you never compare anybody to Randy Johnson anymore. You don't compare Clayton Kershaw to Randy Johnson. You don't complain or you don't compare uh, Justin Verlander to uh, Greg Maddox. You just, you know, they're on their own tiers. So I think, you know, the, the another decade goes by and the standards slowly lower. But just I, I think the backlog is going to be eased and I think it's going to be easier for Burley to get some votes for people who are fans of his when, uh, you know, Schilling's off the ballot and uh, Sosa and Bonds and Clemens are off the ballot. So you'll have uh, some room free up. And I think with Burley, the, the thing that benefits him is that it's not until CeCe Sabathia that a pitcher shows up on the ballot who clearly has a better case than Burley. And I think as long as that's happening, you don't have somebody directly better uh, that's going to take votes away from him or say like, well, Burley was no CeCe Sabathia, so I can't vote for him. Uh, that might give him a couple of years to get a, a little bit more of a foothold, at least, you know, even if he doesn't, uh, you know, threaten induction uh, or at least, uh, you know, election, uh, even getting halfway there, at least be on solid ground to where you don't have to sweat whether he'll make it to another ballot. Well, whatever the result is for Mark Burley and the Hall of Fame vote, we will be re- we will be recapping that vote on SoxMachine.com, so you can look forward to that on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Coming up after a quick word from our sponsors, we'll chat about the White Sox sense of urgency during their contention window. That was written in the Chicago Sun-Times. And talk about park factors at Guaranteed Rate Field. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. This past week, I wrote a column on SoxMachine.com about guarantee rate fields park factors and how I came away surprised by the results looking at the park factors, which you can look up on Baseball Savants or even read the column on SoxMachine.com. Even had Tom Tango and other industry analysts taking a look at the findings and coming away also a bit surprised on how guarantee rate field plays and what maybe are the causes of that. So Jim, I want to ask you after that story gets published and how, you know, the three year rolling average 2019 through 2021. So three seasons, the white Sox rank fourth in major league baseball is one of the most home run friendly ballparks in the entire league, more home run friendly than Coors field. And then Every other batted ball type, singles, doubles, and triples, they're in the bottom third, if not close to last in Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. So how do you look at guarantee rate field in the sense of what type of ballpark this favors towards hitters or pitchers? I think it favors hitters just because of the value of the homer, the outsized value of the homer. And just we've seen how poorly the White Sox fare when they don't have muscle and how easily they can be outscored and how uh, defeated they can look when they don't have power hitters and they can't get the ball in the air. So it's uh, it's a case where, yeah, just it's it still seems like a hitter's park. However, you know, you mentioning it and putting it all together, like I'd seen the park factors, I'd seen it especially for triples. Like that's a case where when I look at the Bill James handbook, year over year, and I look at the home run park factors, I always saw that triples uh, was something that uh, really took a hit. But I didn't realize to the extent that doubles uh, got hurt and singles got hurt. And I think the thing I took away from it was like Tim Anderson, having the kind of profile he does in a park, you know, playing half his game in a park that does not, isn't conducive for it. Like he's not dropping <laughs> singles into like a massive right field or, um, you know, whether it's like a you know, Coors Field or even San Francisco, like having that big right field there. Like he's he's earning the BABIP that he has. So it would seem like it's not conducive to a high BABIP the way that like Yuan Mankata has joined him as well. So they've had some overachievers in that regard. And it does make, you know, Yolmer Sanchez leading the league in triples a little <laughs> bit weirder too. Um, but, you know, we've seen enough watching games since they've changed the outfield dimensions and that they, you know, when they lowered the upper deck, you know, taking rows off the upper deck and watching the wind play more of a factor and, 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 you know, having the ball carry a bit more that, uh, you know, it took usually like either a really fast runner or a misplay of sorts in right field to create easy triples, you know, or catching somebody sleeping on the relay. It wasn't a case where you just see a ball hit in that direction. Like, Oh, that's three bases. It usually takes something special. So um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit surprising, but also I think, you know, we focus enough on just, wishing the White Sox had that left-handed power hitter to be aware of just the edge that that gives. Um, you know, the with the way those, uh, like, Eloy Jimenez and Jose Abreu can just, like, flip a ball into the craft cave. We've seen the ball carry that way to just 
if somebody could lift the ball in that direction with regularity and, 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 you know, with their natural strength pulling it that way, they could do a lot of damage. It just has been, uh, you know, a, a source of frustration that other teams have had those players and the White Sox have not. Yeah. Again, ball and air is super critical, especially hitting at home. If I hear Frank Manichino say home runs are not that important in 2022, Jim, I'm going to get an instant headache because uh, they are incredibly important, especially for this team playing at home. And, and you mentioned Tim Anderson and comparing guarantee Ray field to Coors field and which Coors field, when it comes to singles, doubles and triples ranks in the top three trip, the triple park factor for Coors field is 220. So you'll, you'll see 120% more triples at Coors field at league average. Uh, just crazy. And it makes me think that if Tim Anderson was playing for the Colorado Rockies today, he could hit 400. <laughs> I'm actually looking at it up right now with uh, baseball reference. You can look up what his numbers would look like in Coors Field. Yeah. You can you neutralize the set. So let's see what that looks like. Yeah, because I, I, I'm curious because I, I do think he could, at least for his home splits, he would hit well above 350 at Coors Field. Yeah, the last three years, he would hit uh, from you know, 2019 to 2021, he would hit 352, 341, and 328. Yeah. Okay. So that's with basic neutralization, and maybe you know that doesn't account for the uh, him being a such a unique hitter for better or for worse with his profile that maybe it undersells him a little bit, but it does give him a boost. Like if you're hitting over 350 with uh, neutralized stats, that means uh, that's pretty crazy. So 400 still may not be you know might be out of reach, but yeah, hitting 350 if you if you played 81 games at Coors Field. I, I think Tim Anderson could hit 350. Yeah, I'm looking up now 2000 Coors Field. You can look up by year. Okay. <laughs> so okay now yeah when you uh, when you put him in 2000 Coors Field at the height of the silly ball era, t- 2019 he hits 383. <laughs> <laughs> 2020 372, 2021 357. He's a lifetime 338 hitter. <laughs> 2000 Coors Field. <laughs> so when you have the bouncy ball. In that ballpark. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be the right-handed Tony Gwynn. Slugging 614 in 2020. Well, he may want to think about that when he becomes a free agent. If he's going to be chasing numbers, even though Cooper's field though, like talking about hall of fame voting and maybe it's putting the cart before the horse for Tim Anderson to even have him in those conversations as far as hall of fame voting. But the Coors Field has been used against players. It's being used against Todd Helton, and it was being used against Larry Walker all those years uh, before reaching the, the Hall of Fame. But if you really want to pad, as far as your stats, I know they're not a great organization to play for, <laughs> but man, that is a an amazing ballpark to hit in. And it does make me wonder, going into 2022, because... Camden Yards is pushing their left field back 30 feet. And I can't wait to see Aloy Jimenez reach the injured list, running into that damn wall, uh, trying to field a fly ball that's in that left field gap. Cause it, it, it cuts in. It, it's, it's a really weird design. It's like, like PNC park. Yeah. Yeah. You got that corner there 
that sticks in to the field, and I could just watch Aloy run into that wall. It does make me wonder that if the Orioles get the desired effect that they want, pushing the fence back in left field, if in 2022, Jim, we're talking about guarantee rate field being the most home run friendly ballpark in the American League, because in the last three years, they're second only behind Camden Yards. And Mm -hmm. again, if the Orioles get that desired effect, we could talk about guarantee rate field being the most home run friendly ballpark in the American League. Yeah, you hope that's, you know, and partially you hope that's the case because the White Sox are doing their part. Ideally, you hope the White Sox suppress that number a little bit because they hit, you know, they, they out-homer the opposition so much to where it doesn't seem like the, uh, that guaranteed rate field is doing anything for the hitters. But yeah, based on the way it's played, and especially if the White Sox can get the ball in air a little bit more, especially to right field. Like, that's why I like, like you know, I keep coming back to Michael Conforto, just somebody who might have been hurt a little bit by City Field, and then he comes to guaranteed right field, and that plays to some strengths without him having to be a different player. That's why I, I like his fit for that specific need and would like to see it happen. But who knows when the White Sox will actually be able to make that move, even if they wanted to. That is true. Hopefully we get some additional insight from the in-person meeting between the Players Association and the Major League Baseball owners uh, later today on Monday, January 24, 2022. Again, Jim will be recapping as far as what's reported on SoxMachine.com on the following day. All right, the last thing that I wanted to touch on on this uh, hodgepodge of items in the Sox Machine podcast, uh, there was the, so in the weekend, Chicago sometimes, and you go to your 7-Eleven or gas station, and it's sitting right there, and you see the back page first because it's, you know, this big image that grabs your attention, much like, you see with the news, the, the New York papers, right? The back page always try to grab attention. And the White Sox on the back page, not the Chicago Bears, with all of the interviews that they are currently having for head coach and GM. And it's an article about the sense of urgency that the White Sox must have in 2022. Because when you look ahead at the contracts, we've talked about this that you have key mm-hmm. players within the White Sox Foundation that are going to suddenly be free agents pretty soon. And after this upcoming season, one of them is going to be Jose Abreu. In two seasons, it's Yasmani Grandal and, and Lucas Giolito, possibly even Dallas Keuchel as well. And it does pose the question to the reader, just how long is this contention window for the White Sox? So Jim, I'll pose that question to you. For White Sox fans, looking at what the team is, especially after back-to-back postseason appearances and finally winning the American League Central for the first time since 2008 this past season, how much longer is this contention window? That's a good question just because I thought that this, and, and that's one thing that's tough about this off season being broken up into basically two parts whenever we're having a second part to this off season is not knowing what the White Sox have done to maybe prolong that window or, you know, maybe take resources from this year from like 2022 and then maybe use them to add to 2025 on the back end and, and roll it a little bit. I think we saw with the Cubs and the way they hit a dead end with having, you know, Bryant and Rizzo and Baez and, and kind of running the course with Kyle Schwarber 
and Lester, just, you know, having all these guys more or less peak at the same time and maybe not trading Schwarber to get ahead of those contracts getting big and, and not having replacements for them. Like they got caught behind, um, just stuck in the 2016 you know, frame of reference, it didn't quite, you know, do enough to future-proof themselves against, you know, some guys becoming free agents and not wanting to stick around. So we've seen that Rick Hahn's strength is signing players to below average, you know, below market rate extensions, but that only goes so far. And now it's a matter of being creative in terms of acquiring players who can help later, you know, whether it's later in the first round or in other rounds of the draft besides the first round or, internationally or in the case of like you know the trades we've been talking about trading perhaps the guy we think is a fixture now for somebody who can be a fixture a little bit longer or maybe a little bit cheaper and 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 maybe allow some resources to be thrown a, a greater position of need so that's what's tough about this offseason just being interrupted is that we can't answer that question we we just are looking at the free agent windows and looking at the uh growing salary trajectories for some players and not knowing exactly how the White Sox are going to be uh, running themselves or kind of punching themselves out of this corner. It's something we might have been able to answer if like they signed a Marcus Semyon or a Corey Seager. We might have been able to kind of figure out, okay, this guy is going to be in the, on the roster until 2028. Who's coming? Who's going? Uh, what's that player going to look like and how are they going to surround him? But mm-hmm. you know, when the addition is Kendall Graveman, who is right now the third closer on the roster, that doesn't set the imagination ablaze in the same way. And so we're looking at the same second base, right field, DH, back end of the rotation. We've been wrestling with those arguments since basically the end of September and seeing that Cesar Hernandez wasn't going to be somebody who earns a job for next year and seeing that Adam Engel isn't healthy enough to bank on for being a even like a most-time right fielder and, and just basically batting around the questions for now a fourth month. Yeah. Do you think we'll be able to answer this question whenever spring training starts for the big league camp? Because when it comes to spring training, Mm -hmm. I think spring training is starting on time, but for the minor league camp, because they're already having their mini camps going on right now. I think we're going to see the minor league Mm -hmm. players play these spring training games until there's a new CBA, which I still don't think we're going to get a new CBA prior to March 1st. But when we do get the big leaguers to show up in spring training and after the dust has settled on key free agents uh, and even some key trades that happen when there is a new CBA signed, do you think we'll be able to answer this question, Jim, prior to opening day? I think so. Just because I think if, you know, the status quo is kept and it's a one-year solution for right field and one-year solution for second base and they're counting on Michael Kopech being the guy for the back end of the rotation, hoping Lopez or Steve or Lambert takes another step. And I think we're going to be saying, well, right now the roster says 2024, 20, 25, and hoping that Gavin Sheets becomes more of a factor or, you know, Andrew Vaughn becomes somebody who can't have his future taken away from him at first base, regardless of Jose Abreu's ties. You know, just, it's going to be like arguments like that. You look at the talent on hand and say, well, the White Sox are going to have to prove that they can shove the window ahead themselves, which they haven't quite been able to do yet. Uh, And I don't mind that. I don't mind, you know, I I think listeners will know, I don't mind taking a pessimistic view and just making the White Sox prove that they can do something. And I think, you know, that's not necessarily a bad approach just because we've seen 
especially the right field, failed time and time again. Uh, you know, John Jay to Nomar Mazara to Adam Eaton, all seeming like bad ideas, all turning to bad ideas, uh, just saying, okay, prove to me that you can solve right field. Um, in the case like Gavin Sheets coming out of the second round, uh, showing an ability to make an adjustment, come back and look better, like that's a case where, okay, he proved me wrong. And if he's a guy they roll with and feel good about, like I'm open to that. So um, it's a case where, they have some gains and some ways to replace some players on the roster, but when it comes to the you know, bigger picture and just trying to find athletes, find the five, you know, projectable five-win player, just the anchor of the team up the middle with Grandal being somebody you don't want to count on past 2023, that's a case where, yeah, they don't quite have those players yet and they have to prove they can find or develop them, so... I, I hope they accept the challenge. Well, it goes back to my New Year's resolution for the White Sox because all of the top 100 lists came out for prospects. Mm-hmm. And typically, I'd be more than happy to bring on a Jim Callis or someone from Baseball America or Baseball Prospectus. However, the White Sox have zero top 100 prospects. And that's the sign of where the farm system is currently mm-hmm. and the built-in excuses. Everyone that was worth a damn is with the major league roster and that's the goal, but that's not the excuse for the Tampa Bay's and the Dodgers and the Astros and some of the other top contenders in major league baseball. They don't have that problem. They have top 100 prospects. So there is some type of disconnect that still exists within the White Sox player development ranks, something that we were hoping during the rebuild they would also be able to address and fix. And we'll see what happens when minor league baseball season starts in 2022. It will start on time, so it'll be in early April. And hopefully by the time they update their top 100 list in July, maybe a Yoki Cespedes is hitting well enough to be the top 100 or Norhe Vera captures the imagination of other scouts and prospect writers, and he enters the top 100. There's reasons to be optimistic, but right now, there is a lot to be gained on the player development front. That's also another factor when trying to answer the question of how long is this contention window? Because if we are talking about top 100 lists in July, Jim, and they get updated, and mm-hmm. the White Sox still don't have a top 100 prospect, well, that's going to influence our conversations about, okay, what kind of players can the White Sox possibly trade to to help their mm-hmm. team before the July deadline if they don't have anyone of interest to other teams? Yeah, it, it's uh, even like I can see given how behind the White Sox are, I think, in public opinion and how like controversial Cespedes might be, that they don't have somebody on the list in the top 100, but you know, maybe you feel like you can make a case for them, be it Cespedes or Avera, maybe who still needs a little bit you know, more looks. Or maybe even Colson Montgomery had a nice little base to his start of his pro career uh, in Arizona, like a nice, well-rounded set of skills and just waiting for that standout tool to develop. But at least you can see like a, a breadth of skills there that give him a chance of being that guy, um, yeah, I can see just maybe taking a full season to 
win a consensus of evaluators over to break a top 100. But yeah, right now there's just nobody who, you know, when Jose Rodriguez is a nice story, a lot of teams already have that player. <laughs> White Sox haven't had that, you know, overachiever in from the international ranks break through to double A. Uh, you know, lots of other teams have. Lots of teams have been able to produce, produce that guy time and time again. So having one Jose Rodriguez is nice, but, you know, I, I think if they're going to be more like other teams, they're going to have... Like Brian Ramos is going to join him. They're going to have like at least two who you feel like are six-figure signings, five-figure signings, who just learn how to put it together with the White Sox. And I hope we are talking about that uh, that kind of player. And I think the way the White Sox have drafted, that they want to be that kind of team that can develop those players. But right now they just, you know, when you look at what Thompson and Dahlquist and Kelly did in Kannapolis or didn't do in Kannapolis, and you have, you know, Westcath and, yeah, struggling in, in rookie ball and you know, Vera not being able to play stateside yet. They just haven't been able to get the ball rolling and in, in, in building that groundswell of support. So some some pieces, some interesting players worth following, and we'll be talking about them when uh, uh, yeah, spring training rolls around, as I imagine it will for the minor leaguers. But for the uh, time being, yeah, just uh, they need to develop that kind of athletes and, and get away from the corners because they have the corners, uh, you know, whether it's Vaughn, whether it's, um, uh, you know, Gavin Sheets, Jake Berger could be a late bloomer who could stick around. Um, you know, they just, they have the corners on lock and they just need uh, somebody second, short, mm-hmm. uh, center field, even like a true right fielder, I think that would uh, help really just help the White Sox feel a bit more projectable past 2024. Yeah, 2022, I think it's a big year for the player development staff for the White Sox. Get everyone healthy, get everyone together in key affiliates and and see how it unfolds and maybe gives us a, a more clear picture of what is to possibly come for the White Sox in 2024 and 2025. And that will factor into the answer of just how long is his contention window for the Chicago White Sox. And hopefully we'll be... Better prepare to answer just how long that contention window is for the White Sox whenever opening day is. And hopefully we get some insights again from those talks to the Players Association and the owners on when the lockout could possibly end. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you do listen to us on those two platforms, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you really love the show, a five-star review would be terrific as you can also now uh, rate and review podcasts on the Spotify platform. So I've seen a few of them already. So thank you guys for doing that. Uh, without me asking. Uh, But again, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, please leave us a review. We really appreciate that feedback. We'd also appreciate for anyone that's new to Sox Machine or a a longtime listener or lurker of SoxMachine.com to think about signing up on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash SoxMachine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the website and the podcast and they also get the first opportunity to purchase any new socks machine swag and i know jim you're going through the socks machine redesign right now on the website and our patreon supporters are a big contributor uh in helping us get better hosts and Mm -hmm. be able to do these redesign efforts 
So that is awesome. So do you have any updates for our listeners and when the redesign is going to be done? Yes, the redesign is up now. Um, by and large, there are a couple of straggling pages I need to get to. Most people uh, find them and win a prize. Not really, but it's a case where they are just buried and I just have to get around to making sure that they're accessible years from now if I ever refer to them. But um, yeah, everything is pretty much coming together. I've moved hosts to, I think, a faster host. Um, that And that's a case where things I couldn't afford... Uh, to consider two years from now, I can't afford now. So thank you so much for your support and being a, uh, able to, like we talk about the White Sox, um, you know, how the you know, winning seasons and postseason appearances and season ticket holder base should allow them to expand imaginations and invest in players that they didn't think they could invest in before. I can do the same thing. Like, oh, I can pay for this now because this will go a longer way in making the site faster or making the site behave like the way I want to, or having, being able to arrange these elements in the way I want to, uh, you know, back when I, I launched a site, couldn't really afford to pay for that. Now I can <laughs> and re- revisiting ideas I had a years ago thinking, Oh, this is now possible. So, uh, thank you so much for allowing me to expand my, uh, imagination when it comes to, uh, designing a site. And I think, uh, with the way I have it now, and, and getting this off this bloated site builder into more of a flexible platform that not as heavy and loads faster and, and in a variety of ways that we should be able to do more interesting layouts for uh, pieces that deserve them. So be on the lookout for that. And again, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast as the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.